the recycling number that the Swiss government relies on, based from an NGO that is fully supported, entirely supported by the Swiss beverage industry. I don't believe in the high recycling numbers that uh, Petschweiz is actually showing us, uh, simply because they are not neutral. Welcome to the Swisspreneur Show, a podcast about startup stories and learnings from experienced entrepreneurs. Here's your host, Sylvan. Sven, a very well welcome to the Swisspreneur Show. It's a pleasure to have you here today as a guest. Thank you very much. It's a great pleasure to be here. You are the co-founder and former CEO at Impact Acoustic a Swiss provider of high-performance circular acoustic solutions made from upcycled material. That's a hell of a venture. That sounds super fascinating. It is. <laughs> Let's jump right in with your personal background. You finished your studies in international hotel management, and then you spent the better part of the 2000s working in Asia, the Philippines, China, Malaysia. So what prompted the change of scenery and location for you? Uh, it was quite an accident because uh, I started after uh, Ecole Hotelière de Lausanne. I started as a sandwich maker in the UK. So for uh, six months, I was working at pret manger So the idea was to bring the chain to Switzerland. Unfortunately, it didn't work out. I didn't find a location or no one that uh, trusted a freshly graded uh, <laughs> a student uh, to, to find an open location um, in Paradeplatz. Mm -hmm. um, so I was a little bit lost um, in between and uh, a very good friend of mine was working for uh, DKSH uh, in the Philippines uh, in a really, really cool uh, management trainee program and he managed that I got an interview. So it was like really like uh, head over heels, like within 24 hours I, after he called me, I really just jumped on the next airplane and uh, yeah, that's how I landed in the Philippines. So it's not planned at all. That sounds like a really adventurous start, basically. How did this period shape you? What, what did it change? What did you take away from it? Um, working in Asia is quite different, at least, uh, yeah, 15 years ago, 20 years ago. Uh, it was quite different than uh, Europe, I think. Any any traveling and uh, experience abroad uh, changes yourself, uh, opens your horizons, and um, yeah, learning and accepting different cultures um, is, was definitely a great experience. And then in 2012, you decided to come back to Switzerland. What made you want to come back home? I didn't really want to come back home. It was not, it was an accident again, but I was working for PDM International at the time. And um, my former uh, boss, he had an, a very, very hard uh, accident. So he was in coma for six months. And at that time I took over the, um, the lead of the company or of the office in, in the Philippines. And when he came back after six months, he was still like, uh, he couldn't lead the company still. Uh, we had a very close uh, friendship as well, but when he came back and when he saw that he uh, that I basically took over his job, uh, there was like some traction, and um, I then decided like to um, to go back home. It would be time to go back home. My parents were had also a, a certain age, 
Mm. Um, and I, then I actually applied at um, at uh, Pfister. So they had like uh, this interior fit out. That's at least that's what I thought it would be a uh, company. And uh, our idea, Jeff's and my idea was that we actually um, start a design um, branch of Pfister. So we can actually do a, this so-called design and build company that was at that time not very common in Switzerland or not common at all. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, that's how I got back to Switzerland. Amazing. I didn't regret it. We, we can tell now. And, you know, you're also an entrepreneur today. You already showed entrepreneurial tendencies back then to, you know, start what you just described with, with Jeff, your later co-founder. Where does your entrepreneurial drive come from? Did you have any role models or someone who's inspired you to become an entrepreneur? No, I think it was, um, I mean, I grew up in an entrepreneurial family. Um, one side uh, of my parents, they had restaurants uh, and the other side, um, like technical, um, yeah, technical services here in Switzerland. So it was clear, like from the beginning, I was not very good employee. Um, I have to say that. So I was all <laughs> like the entrepreneurial spirit, like um, yeah, shook through a quite quite a few of my uh, former employers. So um, I'm not very easy to control. I I calmed down. Uh, obviously, I was um, I learned over time. So I got a lot more quiet, and uh, <laughs> I before I say or make decisions, I'm. I take a step back and sometimes I even sleep over it. Uh, so, I mean, the, the entrepreneurial thing was not a, a sudden development. It was basically running in your DNA, so to speak, right? Yeah. To a certain degree. So let's talk about your venture. You then founded uh, Impact Acoustic in 2019 together with your co-founder, Jeff. Mm -hmm. How did you meet him? What was your initial contact that you then said, hey, this is how I met Jeff and now we want to start a company together. Uh, we met uh, on a small island of Boracay in the Philippines at 7 a.m. <laughs> um, and uh, then we had beer until 11 or lunch. So that's how we met. I was at the time working in Shanghai. Also, by the, by the way, like having a startup, Elolist. So I thought it was a really good idea to uh, offer like uh, something similar to HomeGate, but it was much more uh, developed. Uh, to a Chinese market uh, without uh, studying the Chinese market at all. <laughs> so it was a failure. <laughs> um, so Jeff is, a, is an architect and through Jeff, actually, I also got um, uh, basically into uh, design and architecture. Something that uh, initially I want, originally I wanted to study architecture, but at the time we still had technical drawings and I was terrible in, in that. Um, so I decided for Ecolotelier. Uh, instead, which is like uh, offers like quite the broad, um, broad uh, studies. Um, so I, for me, like a, a, a door reopened basically to get mm -hmm. into uh, architecture. Nice. And then you, you switched to the acoustic solutions and you wanted them to be both beautiful, but also sustainable. When did this topic, the combination of both aesthetics and sustainability really caught your interest? The driver was sustainability. So back in uh, when I was working in business development for um, design firms in Asia, um, we already had uh, multinationals. We were catering mostly to multinational companies, and the sustainability story just started to 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 rise. So 
The driver was definitely the sustainability, uh, doing something for the well-being of the planet. But then the first um, sustainable materials, they, they looked ugly. So no one wanted it. And uh, so they, have to, they had to look good. Mm -hmm. I mean, still not sustainable. Uh, acoustic panels, they also look quite ugly. I remember when I set up my office at home, my girlfriend came into the room and said, Oh my God, what did you do to the room? So I see that this need for aesthetic, beautifully looking acoustic panels very, very much. What are the materials that you use nowadays? You know, you, you said they, they look ugly, the first sustainable panels. What materials you do you use? <laughs> it's my competitors. I wouldn't talk <laughs> bad about my competitors. Okay. But of course, it was like um, acoustics in the, in, the, in the past was really like just a building product. Yeah. So it was, I mean... 15 years it was 10 years ago it was not really used yeah. i remember when i my first um, time i went to um, to exposi exposition uh, architectural exposition product here in zurich the leader of the of the exhibit told me you know acoustic no one wants here we want to have clean uh, and seamless architecture and concrete mm -hmm. and stone and wood and not some uh, funny absorbers um, he changed in the meanwhile um, his his view on that. Nobody was really like um, those products were. They didn't have to look good. They had to kind of disappear. They they just they were used when there was no uh, way around them. Yeah. So and the, the they're more mainly done uh, made out of glass or rock. So it's not very sustainable to basically melt rock. Uh, rock melts at about uh, 1,300 degrees upwards. Mm -hmm. So also the recycling of those materials. Those materials, there are actually, I mean, they are um, sold as being um, circular. Uh, and they are circular. I mean, you can melt them again. Yeah. But you have to put a lot of energy into it to get basically uh, the same product out of it again. So uh, it was it was uh, relatively it was not an easy game. I just want to say it. So it was an easy game. Looking back, it, uh, it is an easy game. But uh, of course, it was not an easy game because those products were like um, very, very well known in the architectural um, industry. And then we came like with new materials like of upcycled PET bottles, for example, plastic bottles. Um, there are quite some hurdles to overcome. What were some of the biggest hurdles? Is it more that, hey, they had always used the traditional material and the traditional product. So it was really difficult to educate them what was better or did they not believe that the new technology or the different material could deliver the same results basically or mix of I mean, both? Looking, looking back at our at the success of Impact Acoustic, you can, I cannot really say it was very, very hard. Mm -hmm. I think uh, people really wanted uh, to look, uh, wanted to have new materials. Um, yeah, I think there was not no real challenge when it came to really uh, selling the product. Okay. And then, you know, you have a, a big product line today. You have wall panels, you have ceiling panels, you have desk dividers, room dividers, etc. Which product did you start out first? We started out, Jeff actually started out uh, with the Jetpot. So he was a designer uh, working at the Unispace here in Zurich. And um, he had to do, uh, he had to have phone booths. Mm -hmm. uh, at the time, at the time, there was like one company called Framery that made the best phone booths, but he didn't like them. 
and uh, he didn't like them not only for their looks, uh, but because they had no story and they did, they were not sustainable. So in 2018, we had the um, the chance uh, to be at a booth in the Orgatech, that's like the, the largest office furniture fair in Europe. Um, and we made a, a, a phone booth, a chef designed a phone booth made out of cardboard, upcycled uh, PT bottles, um, recycled uh, MDF, so all sustainable products. And uh, we had Amazon uh, visiting the, um, the booth. And after the fair, we had a request for 1,000 pieces a year. Uh, and we had to basically submit um, the costs or like the offer by 15th of December. Uh, 2018. At that time, we had absolutely no idea how much that would cost to produce. So it was really like a um, good calculation. I was about, I did, I, I always did the economic part of, of it. Jeff is more on the design side. Um, so I got more or less like a spot on calculation. Uh, we didn't get the big order, but we got uh, 76 pots. So that was like when we started first of or second of August 2019. For the first uh, four weeks, we we made chatbots. So Jeff and I we took the night shifts and weekend shifts because uh, all the, the machines were already running, like with, with orders for for other orders for the PT acoustic absorber business. So there were only the nights and the weekends where we could um, basically cut the chatbots, all the cardboard. So we put our van on the parking deck and we put a mattress in there. So that's that's what was our home in the first uh, four weeks of uh, Impact Acoustic. That's crazy. But also a really, really amazing story to share here because it's a great problem to have, but also a stressful one, I imagine, when they then suddenly want to have this offer and you need to deliver once the orders come in. No, the stressful thing was end of August 2019 because that's when we, the first time we run out of money. So like, uh, I think that, that was, that's the big, biggest challenge of, of, uh, of the company. Um, I mean, there are always challenges, but each challenge that you have is an opportunity. So I really, I'm, I'm grateful for, for any obstacles to overcome. Um, but with the money, that's something I cannot really control. Mm -hmm. um, and um, we, had, we had issues, you know, like uh, signing a contract with Amazon is amazing. But having like, uh, I don't remember how much it was, but four or 500,000 franc bill open. Yeah. Um, and uh, your suppliers, the, the carpenters, uh, they want to be paid, obviously. Yeah. So it, that, was, that was throughout the, the, the last four years. Uh, there was definitely a challenge. The latest challenge we had uh, very early first quarter of this year. But this, this really like pushed us to actually uh, attend the Swiss economic um, Award with the with the CEF um, um, support uh, of UBS. So if we would not have had these challenges, we wouldn't be there. We wouldn't have had this exposure and also meeting really really great uh, people who actually looked into our company and also found one or the other little uh, things that we have to fix. Let, let's talk about this liquidity challenge. You know, you, you make a big deal, but then it takes time until you get paid. At the same time, you have to deliver, you have bills to pay from your suppliers. What did you then do in that situation to resolve it? Did you look to have a conversation with your suppliers? Did you follow up on the open invoice to get paid faster? What, what did you do to resolve the situation? Yeah, um, 
It depended. I mean, we had we had it always like um, we were working uh, with, with with UBS from the beginning. Mm -hmm. So already, like after eight months, we we got the first four hundred fifty thousand um, overdraft yeah. uh, of the account, which is pretty amazing. Normally, you have to wait for two or three years until you get it. So I guess we were quite convincing with our business model. Yeah. Uh, we also had uh, we also knew a few um, a few people. Um, my brother, uh, Mark Ernie, who's definitely a great support. Uh, so he, he knew some, uh, people in the, in the industry that we could talk to. So nice. a little bit vitamin B definitely helped. Um, but I think it's a, it's, it's a, it's a combination of talking to, to, to the bank, but you also, before you talk to bank, uh, you have to talk to your suppliers. Uh, you get to have to gain their trust. Um, and then. I think in 2022, mm -hmm. a year ago. Um, so we always got like the money like in, in the Q, Q2 from UBS. But then because we we're growing so quickly, like last 2023, we were growing by 114%. Wow. So obviously we were running out of money um, by January again. And that's when we decided... Um, to have like set everyone on um, prepayment. And it was quite interesting. I had to talk with like a two uh, very large um, uh, carpet, office carpet manufacturers. One of them said they do about 90% on 30 days. Mm -hmm. And the other one said they do about 10% on 30 days. <laughs> and it's like, how is that possible? You know, like really like the same product that is really like replaceable by the other one, uh, yet, it was not a problem. So we introduced that and we were really, really surprised. Of course, we had like some, some old clients that we, that we couldn't do it, but um, that was like 10%, 15% of our clients where we didn't do it. Mm -hmm. With all the others, we, didn't, uh, we did it and we didn't lose, we didn't lose uh, any, any uh, business. That's beautiful. You know, a small hack that makes such a big difference yeah. for your business. Where then, like, you had the cash flow problem sort of, solved to a certain degree right with the upfront payments as, as well as possible yes for for about 12 months yes okay what, what happened then <laughs> no and then we had to we had to apply for the for the for the Ceph, uh yeah. Ceph grows and um yeah that's where we are now so we have just been um awarded or like granted another uh 1.5 million in extra liquidity so I, I think it's it's a continuous like um it's a, con a continuous dialogue yeah and you chose to go for a loan, you know, to finance the operations, etc. Why not go for additional like investment money or anything of that sort where you would sell parts of the equity of the company? I mean, that's the last option. Yeah. Why is that the last option for you? Because I believe uh, in the success of Impact Acoustic. And uh, if we can do it without um, having to give away shares, yeah. I mean, that's that's... Definitely much more, <laughs> it's, it's what everyone wants. Absolutely. I think I, I once read that giving away shares is the most expensive way of financing. So in that regard, Absolutely. you pay a bit of interest, but you don't give away equity. It will be hopefully much cheaper in the long run if your business succeeds. Yeah. I also want to talk about the, the products and you know how you actually produce them. So sustainability is a key aspect of, of your products, obviously. And at the same time, that also sounds challenging because, you know, 
some plastics, for example, they should be recycled, but they don't get recycled because it's too expensive or too complicated. So how do you control your supply chain in terms of sustainability? Well, the fiber that we buy, we buy the fiber, mm -hmm. um, is about um, 18 to 23% more expensive if you buy recycled fiber. Right. Once it is, uh, once our final product is made, you cannot tell if it's recycled or not, but you can tell it as long as it's fiber. So we are, we are the only um, acoustic manufacturer in the PET business um, that actually has um, a certification by a third party that we have uh, the recycled fiber uh, content. So there definitely we have um, the life cycle in uh, under control. So far we have not um, done a take back program um, really for a reason because we did not know how to recycle it. Mm -hmm. And um, we managed end of last year for the first time to recycle our offcuts our product so you have to shredder it and then chemically recycle it and we managed to to gain 97 percent of pure white pet that could be used theoretically to do dumb products like pet bottles mm -hmm. or also other plastic products the three percent uh, remaining are is the color got it and is your recycled material is that mainly coming from pet bottles or also other plastic sources? No, it's only coming from uh, water, pet bottles, okay. clear water bottles, um, clean of any um, plastic, you know, like the, the, the top, which is normally yeah. blue, yeah. Uh, that all that has to be removed to get a good quality um, fiber. Got it. I know we're not there yet, probably unfortunately for a long time, but imagine the world would sort of phase out of plastic bottles. Would that be an existential threat for you because you then run out of recycled material? As long as there is a world economy, there will be plastic bottles. Um, it's quite um, scary, I must say. Um, for example, the, the numbers, the recycling number that the Swiss government relies on uh, is based from an NGO that is fully supported, entirely supported by the Swiss um, beverage industry. Yeah. The, um, in this year alone, between 22 to 23, PET increase in Switzerland is 23%. Um, that's, the, that's what was uh, expected by the end of last year. Mm -hmm. um, I don't believe in the high recycling numbers that uh, Petschweiz is actually showing us uh, simply because they are not they are not neutral yeah. um, and we have way too much PET um, until 2018 all the European PET was basically um, sent to China because we have the trade deficit and the empty containers had to be sent back to China um, and they filled it with shredded uh, clean PET and the Chinese um, used it and recycled it since a long, long time because China is is um, is not very uh, big in oil. Mm -hmm. So probably when you bought a T-shirt at H and M uh, twenty years ago, it was already made out of recycled fiber. Wow! So China is definitely a, a leader in the recycling of plastics. Got it. So I'm not afraid yet. We're we're also working on uh, new products. Perfect. You, you are still full of ideas, so you will find new new products, etc., to work on. 
I also want to talk about the pricing. So how does the pricing of, of your panels compare to regular panels, so to speak, in the market? It's comparable. Um, in most, if you go for the very cheap and small um, tiles, for example, from, from our competitors or from like tra traditional products, I have to say, mm -hmm. so glass and rock wool, uh, we are more expensive. But when it gets um, uh, in a certain size, um, that is actually nice that you can actually use, or into buffles, those are like uh, vertical lamellas, uh, we are actually cheaper. Nice. So that's the beauty about the product. It's not, it's made of recycled, recycled pet bottles. Um, you can do whatever you want or whatever you could do out of an MDF mm -hmm. uh, or wood. Um, yet it has the add-on that it's actually acoustic, um, a, a good acoustic absorber. Um, it's cheaper than wood. It's then, if you go a little bit crazy, uh, it's cheaper than any traditional product. Wow, and it's sustainable, which yes. is a more and more important USP, yes. of course. Yes. You also made a very interesting decision from the outside I would like to talk about. You decided to stop selling to the world's five biggest plastic bottle polluters, Coca-Cola, Suntory, Benoni, PepsiCo, etc. What motivated this decision and what have been the consequences on, I imagine, on a PR, but also on a business level, potentially? What motivated it was um, a request for a quotation in the US for PepsiCo headquarters of more than half a million. Up to today, this would have been our biggest um, single standing um, offer. And we thought that's not right. We cannot pr uh, uh, basically say one thing and then do the other. Mm -hmm. um, so Jeff and I had this idea and went to our board. The board was not amused, I can tell you. I can imagine. Um, yeah, but um, I think it's uh, it was a, was the right decision, and um, we keep on losing business, um, especially with Pepsi and Coca Cola. I mean, they're they're, they're still building offices, a lot of offices uh, all around the globe, and uh, we they request from us, and we have to keep on saying no, Nestle, no Coca Cola. So I as um, I assume. This year we will lose between 1.2 and 1.5 million in turnover by this decision, but we don't regret it. We never regretted it, and I'm sure uh, architects um, gave us like uh, like um, yeah the first uh, decision uh, when it came for a decision like between other products. It also shows that you really not only you know talk about sustainability, but that this is really also a key, a core value for you, and you also live it. And at the same time, um, it also shows the importance of not giving away too much equity and having investors or someone pushing you just for the business numbers. Yes, sure. Like we have, um, our board is actually made up of only um, two financial guys, mm -hmm. Jeff and myself. So it's uh, it's quite interesting, but you know, yeah, one of one of them is my brother Mark. Um, he had like Hans, uh, also a financial specialist, uh, basically watching over me because uh, in the beginning my brother didn't really uh, believe in me that uh, I could uh, I could handle it. But I always knew like once uh, as long as I always know where every franc uh, or every dollar uh, in our company goes. And I still know that today 
Uh, I know about every receipt. I know all our prices, purchasing prices. Um, I know all the flaws and I know as long as I know about that, uh, he will give me freedom. And the numbers have to be right. Of course. Yeah. You have to deliver, but you do have a certain freedom we to have also freedom. make these decisions, yeah. of course. Yeah. We do a lot of short notice uh, decisions. Yeah. Um, we change, we, we, we plan our business for always like in October for the next 12 to 18 months. Um, and then we change it completely again. Yeah. That's the beautiful part of being an entrepreneur, I guess. Yeah. Let's talk a bit more about this decision, you know, to not work with the big uh, bottle, pet bottle or plastic bottle polluter, so to speak. In in one way, they're also your suppliers a bit, right? Because they have these bottles that you then recycle and need for, for your material. It's not your goal, I assume, to become obsolete at one point, right? It is our goal. It is? But we won't become obsolete. It's the long-term vision, but it's not that realistic in the shorter, medium term. Correct. Got it. Well, that, that, that's a bold vision. But you know, like, um, I wouldn't say in general that PET is just bad. Mm -hmm. I mean, the idea of uh, PET was, was absolutely good. Um, it basically, when you, when you buy a, a glass bottle of San Pellegrino, um, which, by the way, is regular Italian tap water. It's not mineral water. Uh, you ship that around the globe and you drink it uh, in LA. That's really, really dumb. Yeah. Um, if you put the same water in a plastic bottle, it's still dumb, but it's a little bit better because it's, it, it's less weight. Yeah. Uh, so the idea behind the PET bottle was good. Um, we also see, uh, for example, um, in, in Germany, they still have a good system. They have actually the original system uh, to take back the PET bottles and to, to use them, I don't know how many times, but 10, 20 times before you melt it. The problem is really the single-used plastic. Yeah. Um, and also that, um, did you know what year did we oh. decide to drink water, not from the faucet, but actually out of a bottle? I have no clue. Probably much later than, than one would expect. Yeah, it was like end of 70s. Okay. Well, but it's really crazy. And yeah. today, you know, I, I tried to keep trying uh, to convince my mom uh, to, to drink the, the water in, from the faucet here in Switzerland. We yeah. have, we have, we have great water. Yeah. Um, yet she, she, she wants the mineral water because of the minerals. At the same time, she eats a tablet with 1000 milligram of uh, calcium <laughs> and magnesium. Yeah. You know, it's like, but it's, it's so, so much in, in our heads. Um, she also feels really bad if uh, when I order in the um, in the restaurant tap water. Mm -hmm. So it's really it's it's really part um, of us uh, of the, of society to use um, bottled water. So if you would already stop like uh, consuming bottled water, yeah. that would be a, a great 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 improvement. Yeah, and I mean it also has become to a certain degree a status symbol in the consumer economy Absolutely. or society. Right, I can afford in the U.S. to import this Italian water, which is complete nonsense, but we do it because it's status and that's show off. Yeah. That's just, you don't pay the actual price, you should be paying for it. Yeah. Another, another fun fact, Avion. Mm -hmm. Did you know, like uh, in any um, hospital, in the intensive care station, they do not offer you Avion because of the bacteria. Oh. So they only offer a filtered tap water. 
It's quite, it's quite, quite funny, you know, like interesting um, because yeah. the Avion uh, makes advertisement with uh, with babies yeah. and how healthy it is, and every mom feels much, much better to to give uh, Avion water to 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 their kids. But it's actually the worst thing you can have. Like bottled water, you always have to uh, drink with bubbles. That kills the, the germs and bacteria. Wow, I, I didn't know that. That's a very good learning. I also want to talk uh, about one example. You know, you said you don't work with the plastic bottle polluters, but on the other hand, for example, Amazon is a customer. Our biggest where, customer. Your biggest customer even. Where do you draw the line? Because one could argue, hey, Amazon also contributes to a lot of plastic pollution through, you know, the whole e-commerce part. So where is like the line for you to say, we do want to work with these companies or we don't want to work with these companies? Well, this uh, is absolutely very good, very good uh, question. And it comes up uh, in our executive board over and over. Um, it even came up like with a new product uh, for um, Coca-Cola, now for a big project in Paris, mm -hmm. uh, where we supplied not a PT product, but one of our new product made of uh, recycled cotton. Um, and we were having these discussions. Can we offer them now the new product? And we said, no, let's stick to the plan. Mm -hmm. um, we don't offer it to the PET polluters, but we then, if we, if we decide not to offer it to any polluters, we cannot offer it to any of the oil and gas clients, um, none of the banks, uh, insurance companies. Um, it's just the list goes on. Right. It's very difficult to say, where do you draw the line, right? Absolutely. I mean, that's, that's, uh, that's really, really difficult. So we, we just said, like, look, we have to make uh, money. Um, we want to make money. Um, yeah, I, I'm probably we get to this a little bit later. Why this is so important as well. I mean, I could also make an NGO and just have like a nice acoustic absorber, but that's not, uh, that's not the plan. So we want to be profitable. We want to make money and we have to sell it to someone. Yeah. And I like that. I, I once uh, heard in a podcast by Naval Ravikant, a, a great thinker I follow. He said, if you want to change something for the good in the world, it's actually a good idea to do it for profit because then you have to stand alone. You have to be able to survive on your own and create that market or educate the market that they buy your products, in your case, more sustainable products. Is that sort of a statement that you agree with and say that's why you want to do it for profit instead of being in a non-profit? Well, absolutely. I mean, um, we spend a lot in marketing. Yeah. Um, and I think the, the biggest, we cannot change uh, the world uh, by upcycling some pet bottles. Even we upcycle by now about close to 40 million um, a year. This 40 million is, is only one minute of how much PT bottles uh, the world consumes uh, <laughs> every minute. So it's nothing, you know, like we cannot, we cannot solve uh, those problems, but what we can help is like to, to spread the word. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's much more important than what we do on uh, in our daily business. Is there also, no, once you, you make some profits with your company, you have also more options, I would say, to change or to put money into other projects or into R and D. Exactly, I mean, that's exactly what uh, what we have been doing, and uh, that's uh, why we can launch uh, new products uh, this year as well that are are not uh, made of uh, PET. And and then I love that because you know sometimes you hear that companies shouldn't make profits. This is a bad thing because they always want more and more and more. But 
you seem to have a very good idea where you want to go. And if you make money with your business where you put it, to then have an even bigger and greater impact. So in that sense, making profits is actually a very, very good thing. Absolutely. I mean, it's, uh, it's part of the game since, uh, since the beginning. And we also, like even in our first year, we were cash flow positive. So it's really, really uh, important to us that we have our financials under control. Um, and live, we live a little bit on the edge. We always did. So we don't, yeah. we don't feel comfortable. Uh, I mean, of course, we would feel comfortable. We, but we live a little bit on the edge. So we push it, the spendings, but we, we never take too much risk so that we can cover um, our payables as well. Absolutely. And I also want to talk about the client or customer acquisition. You said you invest a lot in marketing. How do you acquire your clients? How do you build the brand and then eventually win them over as paying clients? Yeah, I mean, we started in 2019. Um, about eight months later, there was COVID. Um, that was probably, that was definitely our biggest opportunity mm -hmm. a challenge and then a quick opportunity because in the first eight months we didn't have money to actually employ any salespeople, and eight months later we didn't have to pay them yeah. and um, we had like from the beginning um, um, marketing strategy that was on on uh, social media focusing on social media and even today today we we do have we do have two salespeople, one in Paris, because in, in France, you have to have someone local. Okay. Yeah. And the other one in the UK. And in the UK, that's, that's very new. Uh, I, I've been waiting for him since uh, 2019. Yeah. So uh, I always said, like, I leave my fingers out of the UK market. I only go in there if you are on board. So uh, now, four years later, he, um, he joined. But those are like really important market. I, I don't understand the UK market. I don't. Uh, I have problems with this uh, with the with the culture. Mm -hmm. It's not. Uh, it's for me difficult to understand. And with the French, I I, I just cannot have a conversation. So that's that's uh, <laughs> that's the problem. My French is a little bit poor. Yeah. So, um, but we we really do not rely on them. Yeah. We also um, do not rely on fairs. We just go uh, to fairs to to show up mm -hmm. because uh, we felt, um, especially in the industry of resellers. Um, sometimes uh, it's it seems a little bit arrogant uh, to say like oh no we don't need to go there yeah. um, but as a matter of fact we we really do all our like ninety percent of our acquisitions through um, through marketing mm -hmm. and then of course um, resellers so we have um, we implemented uh, successfully now also Salesforce this year so we basically our resellers our agents. Uh, and representatives, they are kind of our employees and they're fully integrated into our um, sales network. Amazing. But if I understood that correctly, due to your marketing activities, you basically create a lot of inbound interest plus the resellers. That's like 90% of your revenue. Yes, correct. So if, if, um, if an architect calls me mm -hmm. uh, in Lucerne and, or calls my team and asks like for, a, for a personal visit, we simply have no one um, in our headquarter that could actually drive there. Right. I do it for, uh, of course, for some exceptional um, architects. Yeah. Um, but normally we then work, we, we, we um, consult them 
and then we make acoustic uh, reports for them. So we, there's absolutely no reason why I, if I have to plan and today everything is in 3D. So it's actually, there's no point to actually stand inside the construction site or in a building to look around because there's nothing I can consult them with there. Yeah. So once, uh, once I have the plan, we have a lighting specialist, we have acoustic specialist, we can do everything uh, remotely. And then once we consult them, we, we hand them over um, to our partners. They right. will then go and take site measurements and uh, manage the project yeah. and place the order with us. Nice. So in, in that regard, you are very lean in, in, your, in terms of your setup. Very, very lean. I mean, it's also, we had the chance last year, Jeff, uh, he's Filipino. I was always looking for uh, for a reason uh, to go back to the Philippines. <laughs> I love to work with uh, with Filipinos, um, yeah. And so we decided um, that we that we open a service center. And uh, today we are as far that we only have like the the team leaders. For example, in logistics, the team leader is here in Switzerland, but the entire uh, support staff is in, in the Philippines. So we employ now more people in the Philippines than in Switzerland. And the, um, the truck that, that um, picks up our goods uh, in Lucerne and sends them to Basel, for example, or to Berlin is organized out of the Philippines. Amazing. Everything like we have, uh, we have 27 architects uh, in the Philippines. Um, we will now launch in, um, in uh, September the first 24-hour support center. So in all the time zones around the globe, we are available uh, to call, to talk to someone from Impact Acoustic uh, around the clock. And I think these, these are the things we really invest into service, um, which we could not um, sustain if we have to employ, employ everyone from, uh, from Switzerland. No. So that was... Uh, results in a very lean organization. Absolutely. And also with the resellers, so they do a, then a big part of the detail work around the sale for you. Absolutely. I assume you then also share the margin with them to a certain degree. What was that an easy decision for you to say, hey, we have maybe a bit of lower margin by working with resellers instead of doing everything ourselves, but also we can stay much leaner and probably have a few headaches uh, less than if you do everything in-house. Yeah, I was working as a project manager for for a few years in in architectural pro, uh, projects. Um, it's quite tiring. Yeah, and I said um, I will never want to do that. So it was clear from the beginning was, that was our business model. Yeah, fantastic. So now we already heard you have some very well known and big uh, customers like Amazon or Microsoft offices in Lucerne, and the Philippines. What's next? for Impact Acoustic? Something that was not planned uh, um, in last December or not approved by the board uh, last year, uh, we're gonna open a 7,500 square meter uh, production facility in Northern Italy, where wow. we produce everything outside, uh, apart from Switzerland. So we mm -hmm. still produce for the Swiss market here in Lucerne. Um, but out of Italy is basically Europe and um, West uh, East Coast of uh, of the US and uh, Africa. So that that all will come out of uh, Italy. Reason being, really like the the simplicity of um, of um, to work within the EU. Right. So we had like right. some issues, uh, um, export tax issues. Yeah. So. 
it's a shame. It's a shame, yeah. But if you have a physical good, that just adds another complexity with the whole custom rules, etc. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And Italy was was again like um, it was based because uh, our researchers for our new product um, they were from Italy and they didn't want to move. Um, <laughs> I didn't want to go to France. I didn't yeah. want to go to Germany. Germany is just not so cool for design. Yeah. Uh, well, Italy design doesn't seem exactly. like the perfect fit for that. Uh, yeah. Italy, I mean, we already are struggling a little bit with the um, with the bureaucracy of Italy, yeah. but I think that's uh, because we have already experience uh, from the Philippines, so that's all like obstacles to overcome again. It's close to Switzerland, um, yeah. And then, what is next for you personally? Next, uh, <laughs> we're soon starting um, to build our yacht. Um, it's a um, it's a sail yacht, a solar sail yacht. Wow! So that will take two years. So it's really like a next. It's really a project. Yeah. So I want to know everything about sailing. I'm not a sailor. Not yet. No. I <laughs> hope I'm not getting seasick. Yeah. Um, but it's really like uh, it's something that I always had in mind um, that I always wanted to do. Um, it's a project. I want to know everything about uh, solar energy, about electric engines. Um, yeah, that's, uh, that's the next big project. Amazing. That sounds really exciting. To wrap up the conversation today, we have also prepared some rapid fire questions for you. I'm going to give you a short question and you can answer ideally in one sentence. If you need a bit more, it's also fine. You're ready? Mm -hmm. Yeah. What is the, your favorite product from your own product lines at Impact Acoustic? The next product. What's a sound that relaxes you? Anything that has to do with water. Oh, nice. I like that. When you graduated college, did you imagine you were going to be an entrepreneur? Yes. It's in your DNA, as you heard. Yes. Yes. What's your favorite thing about being an entrepreneur then? I cannot even say that, mm -hmm. but I know that I'm not a very good employee. Yeah. That's, that's also a statement. And the last one for you today, what's your dream? My dream, I was, I was asked this question 20 years ago uh, on a small island by an old guy who made like two bracelets a day and sold it to tourists. And he only sold two bracelets and made two bracelets because that's all he needed to, to live. Mm -hmm. And he asked me, I was fascinated about this because I, I, I saw this, you know, we always need more. Right. Um, but he said like, he has a mango tree and he needs some bracelets uh, to buy beer in the evening. <laughs> One beer, you know, for yeah. sunset. And um, he did some yoga on the beach. And uh, he asked me is the same question. And I answered him that I want to travel the world, ideally with a sailboat. Mm -hmm. I was like, no, I, I mean, I, I, I told him everything about my dream. Uh, he said, that's not a dream, that's something that you're going to do. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't understand him and asked him what his dream was. And he said he would be, like to become a bird. So it took me 20 years to really understand um, what he meant with that. So my dream would be that society survives and um, finds a new way to live uh, in a more sustainable and peaceful way together.
I love and that. I hope it will happen. I love that. I think that's a wonderful story to end the episode today. Sven, thank you so much for coming on the show. Lots of success and all the best for the future. Thank you very much. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, you can support us by rating our show on Apple Podcasts. This way, we can reach an ever-growing number of aspiring entrepreneurs.